talked about uh, James 1 last Sunday night. I just wanted to talk about it some more today, expand on it. And, uh, James 1 is certainly a book that we're all very familiar with. And uh, it's always good, even though we're very familiar, to, to look at it again because it has so much wisdom in it and so much truth and so much comfort. And James uh, is the author. He's credited as being the author. He's the Lord's brother. And there are others with the same name. You know, there's um, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, and there's James, the uh, um, son of Alphaeus. And, uh, but James is credited, the brother of the Lord, with being the author. And um, tradition attributes this book to him. In Galatians 1.9, he is called the Lord's brother. He was the oldest half-brother of Christ, Mark 6.3, and the brother of Jude, who also wrote the book of Jude. James, along with his brothers, had first rejected the Lord Jesus as being the Messiah in John 7. They were not willing at first to accept him, um, that he could be the Son of God. After all, they grew up in the same house with him, and um, I can't imagine what it must have been be like. Must have been like growing up with a brother who was sinless. But uh, at this point in Jesus' ministry, they really didn't know what he was here for and what his mission was. He was just their brother. And uh, even after they'd seen some of his miracles, they were still not ready to accept his message. But um, it was likely when Christ rose from the dead. And he appeared to more than 500 people. And then he appeared also to James, his brother. And it was after that, I believe, that uh, James came to the realization who the Lord Jesus Christ was. And with humility here in this first chapter of James, he introduces himself as James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's turn to James chapter 1 and read the first Nine, first eight verses. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who were dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brother, and when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So James, being the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and it was his counsel, by the way, in Acts 15, that resulted in the letter that was written to the Gentiles, directing them that circumcision was not required for salvation, but just to keep the moral laws in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ was necessary. So he's writing to the Jews that are scattered abroad. Um, 
in verse 1, because of dispersion of the believing Israelites from, from their center, which is in Jerusalem and Palestine, to the surrounding areas. So he began his uh, letter here by encouraging those believers not to be discouraged by the trials that they would experience. Um, the Lord was building them up, conforming them to the likeness of the Lord. In, his, in this early letter to the Jewish Christians, James encourages them in times of trial, teaching them how to respond in godly ways. He uses language similar to the Sermon on the Mount. He instructs his readers on many aspects of practical Christian living. In doing so, he shows that the Christian life reveals itself through faith leading to good works, not only by claiming to have faith and holiness. So in verse 2, he says, Count it all joy. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. So we want to look at that in three different aspects. One aspect would be our attitude toward trials. A second would be our advantage in trials and also our assistance for trials. So as you look at our attitude, number one, what is our attitude? What, it sh what should it be as we face trials or as we're in the midst of trials? And so he says in verse one, consider it all joy when you encounter these trials. That's not an easy thing to do, is it, when we're in the midst of trials? So does it mean we rejoice in the fact that we're having a trial? I don't think that's what he means here. I think we're supposed to rejoice in the fact that the Lord is working through these trials in us to bring us to where he wants us to be. And we as Christians, when we face trials, there should be a distinct difference in the way we, we respond versus the way unbelievers respond. Unbelievers really have nothing to attribute their trials to because they don't believe in the Lord and they're just having a difficult time with their life and they, they don't know how to handle it. They get depressed, overwhelmed with it. But we, on the other hand, because we know that the Lord is with us no matter what it is, no matter what we're going through, we can rejoice in the fact that he is working in us and he'll bring us through these things. This is the promise he has made to us. So trials should be faced with that attitude of joy. You know, the Lord will bring me through it one way or the other. Because God is working. It shouldn't be seen as punishment. Although sometimes God may bring trials into our lives as a result of those things in our life that are not right with him. He'll want to purge those things out of our lives that are not consistent with godly living. So... They should be a means of rejoicing, knowing that God is working in us to cause us to walk according to sound faith. It's important to note that God does not tempt us with evil. He doesn't tempt us to sin. In James 1.13, it says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But he uses the temptations in our life and the trials to bring us to where he wants to be, us where he wants us to be. James is aware of all these various difficulties and trials that these Jews are having. And he's trying to encourage them. He doesn't mention anything specific, but there are 
various trials, many kinds, different degrees of severity. But it's understood that these trials will come. I mean, this is not an exception. It's going to happen. It happens in our lives. We know many people that are going through all kinds of trials. No one's exempt. They come in many forms. But the Lord's desired result is always the same. That is to bring us to Christ-likeness, bring us to spiritual maturity, so that we can glorify Him. And all too often, you know, trials prompt groanings and complaints. We live in a world where the majority of the people we know are, are unbelieving. And if you work in an environment like I do, where there's a lot of unbelievers, lots of people, you know, it seems to be a constant stream of misery, groaning, complaining, no matter what it is, they're groaning, they're not happy with their job, they're having problems. People seem by nature many times to just be unhappy with the circumstances and feel the need to express it. When a believer comes along who lives with the understanding that James is expressing here, it's such a glaring difference from what you usually experience in people. You can see it right away. I notice it right away. A lot of times when people come in, I'll have a contractor that comes in, and I notice right away there's something different about him. And I'll ask him if he's a believer. Sure enough, you can see that difference. It's outstanding. And if you want to get someone's attention, um, when they're complaining, say they're complaining even something is the weather. Just quote Psalm 118, verse 24. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And you see how they respond. Either they'll look at you like you're weird, or you might have an opportunity to share your faith with them, to share the gospel. So we think of some of these characters in the Scripture that went through from tremendous trials and how they responded. Look at Paul and Silas and their attitude as they were going through trials in Acts verse 16. So let's turn over to Acts verse 16. Just read that for a moment. Read verses uh, 23 through 25. So, when they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. And when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, trembling with fear, and he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So here they are. They're, they were beaten. This, by the way, was an illegal punishment because they weren't convicted of any crime. They were beaten with rods and were tied together in a bundle until they were bleeding. They were put into the innermost part of the prison and their feet were secured in stocks. And that in itself was a painful thing, cramping their feet and spreading their legs as far apart as possible. The wounds sustained by the beating were probably causing additional pain. And so what do they do in this circumstance? 
They didn't cry or yell or complain, even though they were there illegally. They prayed. They sang. And it's noted here also that the prisoners heard them. They were a witness and testimony to those prisoners. And the Lord answered their prayer with an earthquake. All the prison doors opened up, and the terrified jailer rushed in and asked a great question, what must I do to be saved? So singing and praying, rejoicing, that's the way that God wants us to respond to trials. He says, consider it all joy, all of it, no matter what it is, every bit of it. It's, it's not like we dissect our circumstances and evaluate which one is from the Lord and which one is not. The word that he uses here when he says all, he means every kind, every variety. One commentary put it, every possible trial to the child of God is a masterpiece of strategy of the captain of salvation for his good. So, we are to strive to be like our Lord and walk as he walked, it says in the scripture. Of course, we can't do it in sinless perfection like he did. But when you look at how he responded, look at what he was going through, facing the crucifixion. And he came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at that place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew them from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and he began to pray. So the Lord's response to this unimaginable trial that he was going through was to go to a place by himself and pray. Our attitude should be the same when we're under trials. Our attitude should be to, to go to the Lord, depend on him, go to him in prayer. This is what can give us peace in our trials, a prayerful attitude. Philippians 4, 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. By the way, I neglected to pray before I started the message, so I will just say a short prayer now. To Father, thank you for the opportunity you've given me to present your word this morning. Thank you for your faithfulness to us and for the fact that your word stands true. It has stood true for eternity and will stand true for eternity to come, Father. Thank you that we can put our faith and trust in it. And Lord, help me as I continue with the word here to be able to speak clearly and and present your word in a way that does bring glory to your name, Father, and helps us to understand better how you want us to respond, Father, to trials in our lives. For this I pray in Christ's precious name. Amen. Sorry about that. I meant to do that at the beginning, and as my custom is, I always seem to forget that. So, so we look at, uh, let's look at First uh, Peter, verse 6 for 9, because he has something similar to what James says. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. In this you greatly rejoice, speaking of trials, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith 
being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, it may be found to result in praise, in glory, in honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as an outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So, Peter is giving us the same direction as James is. So what is our attitude? It should be joy. We're commanded to rejoice, and especially in trials, because that's what sets us apart from the world, and it brings glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Another aspect of uh, our response to trials, along with um, our attitude, should be our advantage in trials. We can face trials with joy as Christians because we know that there are advantages from the testing and the difficulties that we go through. Many of us can remember, perhaps, um, before we came to Christ, what our lives were like. We, again, as unbelievers, we didn't really look forward to eternity at that time. We weren't even thinking about it. So, we may have been steeped in wicked behavior. When we look back, now see how the Lord had brought us out of those things, those things we used to do. What a tremendous source of joy that is. To know that the Lord has delivered us from those things that used to enslave us, those things that used to be shameful, those things that separated us from a right relationship with the Lord and are now a thing of the past that no longer have any control over us. We are now controlled by the Spirit of God. He's given us that strength and that ability through the trials and things he's brought into our lives. In verse 3, he says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Um, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, the word for knowing indicates that there is already an understanding with the readers. James knows that they've been through experiences like this, and they know what the outcome of the trials are in their lives. They know through experience it'll build endurance or patience. They've already experienced it. Endurance, according to Strong in the New Testament, is a characteristic of a man who is not swerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith and piety by even the greatest trials and sufferings. He's not swerved. As God works these things in our lives and we develop those spiritual fruits that are so precious in service to God and others, they not only strengthen us in this life, but they have eternal advantages. When others are going through trials, it also presents the opportunity to come alongside them in their trials, to pray for them, to encourage them, as James is doing, to help them. This presents to those who are looking in from the outside a people who have a love one for another. And this is how the world knows that we're his, 
This is what it says in John 13, 35. By this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. So as we go through trials, we don't go through it alone. We have the Lord and we have other believers to help us and to pray for us. And we come through these things and it brings glory to our Lord and Savior. And he says the testing of your faith. This testing, that is, by the way, it's something that it means to be proved. When we go through trials, it proves our faith. You know, we see a lot of people today who slap that label on themselves that they're Christians. And they may do it uh, with timidity. They might do it in the presence of limited audiences. They may even go to church on Sunday. But when you observe their lives, there doesn't seem to be any proof of their faith. And then when trials come into their lives, they don't have the strength that God gives them. They don't have the Lord to bring them through these things. And then the real person ultimately will come out. As believers, we want the testing of our faith to prove that we're trusting in him. It's the proof of our faith. And it's far more valuable than gold. God is always in the process of refining us. It never stops. Similar to what Peter says, he's making our faith more precious than gold. God is the refiner. Refining uh, with flame is one of the oldest methods of uh, refining metals. Mentioned in the Bible, refining by fire is a preferable method for gold. In ancient times, this form of refining involved a craftsman sitting next to a hot fire with molten gold in a crucible, being stirred and skimmed to remove the impurities, the dross that rose to the top of the molten metal. With flames reaching temperatures of 1,000 degrees Celsius, this job was a dangerous job, dangerous occupation for the refiner. And that tradition remains largely the same today. God refines us. Sometimes it's difficult, it's uh, hard or painful, but we must trust in him because he knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing with our lives. He does not make mistakes. He's absolutely perfect and all-knowing. When in the midst of trials or temptations, he's promised us that he wouldn't allow anything beyond what we're able to bear. We've got to keep that in mind. In uh, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, he says, No temptation could also be trial has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation will provide a way of escape that you also will be able to endure it. And the result is that God is accomplishing his purpose in us, refining us, skimming out all the impurities and he can use us. We've been proven to be faithful. True faith, like pure gold, endures no matter how hot the fire. In verse 4, James says, Let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So this is the goal that God has for us, spiritual maturity although not sinless perfection, 
we've come to a place in our lives where we've learned to endure and persevere those things that others would be destroyed by because they don't have faith. But it doesn't end there, you know? I remember a song my kids used to sing in Sunday school. Maybe you've heard it. It's under construction. It says the Lord isn't through with us yet. Now that's also true for adults. The Lord never finishes with us until the day he takes us home. We're never complete altogether. Um, but he preserves us. In 1 Thessalonians 5.23 it states, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Trials can be faced with joy because the result of true faith is perseverance. And perseverance results in spiritual maturity, and spiritual maturity results in a believer that is truly content and able to serve the Lord in a way that pleases him with an unshakable confidence, not in himself, but in the Lord, who has proven to be faithful to us over and over again in our lives. But as we see, even as mature Christians, we still rely on the Lord. We still need his assistance. So we have the attitude, and now we have assistance. We look for the Lord's assistance. We always seek assistance from the Lord. We can never get to spiritual maturity on our own. In verse 5 he says, and if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. So we need to ask of God. We need this wisdom to go through these trials to become what the Lord wants us to be. So what is wisdom? What's the definition we have in the, in the dictionary is uh, knowledge that's gained by having many experiences in life. The natural ability to understand things that most other people can't understand. Knowledge of what is proper, reasonable, good sense or judgment. Is that, I don't think that's the definition of wisdom that James is looking for here. The wisdom he's looking for is not the same. That's not spiritual wisdom. Wisdom that is not, uh, which comes down from above, is earthly, natural, and demonic. This is, the kind, this is not the kind of wisdom we want. The wisdom that James is talking about here, he states in chapter 3, verse 17, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy, then again in Proverbs 9, we know, we know this verse, we're all very familiar with it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So in this verse, we see that we need three components. Knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. He says the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So we need all three components in order to have this wisdom to have the wisdom James is talking about here. Knowledge being the first component needed, Paul consistently in his writings admonishes us to grow in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It's all over through the scripture, but in, first, in Colossians 1, verse 9, it says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So we need to have the knowledge. We also need to have understanding. In 1 John 5, verse 19, it says, We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So it's God who gives us this knowledge and the ability to understand that knowledge through his Spirit and his Word. The Word of God is spiritually discerned, it says in the Scripture. Those without Christ don't have the ability to achieve wisdom because they don't understand Scripture. They have no understanding. We have our understanding and wisdom from the Scripture. In Psalm 119, verse 130, the unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. We receive knowledge and understanding from God's Spirit working in us as we study his word and look to him in prayer. Wisdom, then, is the ability to apply knowledge and understanding that the Lord has given us. So if any of you lacks wisdom, he says in verse 5, what kind of a person is willing to admit that he lacks wisdom? It must then be someone who has recognized what he is before the Lord. A sinner, having been saved by God's mercy, recognizes his standing before the Lord. God has already began to deal with him, his pride, one of the greatest stumbling blocks for anyone to overcome. Pride in the heart of an individual has a tendency to push out wisdom. He, that, um, he with that knowledge, understanding and wisdom from above, is able to come to the Lord humbly and receive strength and endurance that he needs in the time of trial. The greater the spiritual wisdom of the individual, the greater the understanding he has of his own inadequacy. God is generous in how he dispenses wisdom. But we must ask him. It's just not a casual request he's talking about here when he says, let him ask of God. This word he's talking about here, let him ask, means to beg, to call for, to crave, to desire. We don't just casually ask the Lord for wisdom. We really have to want it with all our hearts. He wants all of our being, all our desire, all our love, our obedience. He wants us to beg for this wisdom from him. And so in doing, he's pleased to give it to us generously so that we might have what we need to overcome those things in our life to help us to grow in our faith and bring glory to God, our Savior. And we are to ask without reproach. It's an illustration of how lovingly God gives it to us. As we humbly seek him, he gives us and supplies us with those needs without taking into account our shortcomings, our sins, and even our future failures. Consider what God did for Solomon. Solomon is a very young ruler. 
over the people of Israel. And he came to the Lord, and he asked the Lord only for wisdom so that he could lead those people. And the Lord abundantly poured upon him that wisdom, but also great riches and power. And the Lord did this knowing that colossal failure Solomon was going to be in his life, the disobedience, how he would turn away from the Lord. And so it goes on to say, let him ask of God, it will be given to him. He doesn't say that it might be given to him, but rather that it will be given to him. We can be assured that God will supply our needs. He who started a work in you, in Philippians 1, verse 6, he says, I'm confident this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord is faithful. He will provide all we need in the midst of trial to bring us to where he wants us to be, but the Lord does have conditions. He says we must ask in faith. It says, let him ask in faith in verse 6. Hebrews 11:6 it says, without faith is it impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. You know, I think of that movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Remember when George was all destitute and down because he was about to fail, he lost all his money, and he goes and he starts to pray. He says, God, if you're up there, if you're up there, he says, I'm not a praying man. This is not the kind of prayer God wants. Um, we need to ask in faith. We need to be sure of our faith and stable in our understanding of who the Lord is. And then James goes on to give us some warnings here. We are not to ask with doubting. This refers to having your thinking divided. Reserving part of your devotion to the world will result in God withholding those requests. We must be entirely given over to the Lord and surrendered to his will, ready to take up our cross and follow him. Sacrificing those old habits and desires that stand in the way of our relationship with him. We cannot have a minimalist attitude. That is to reason within ourselves just how much we have to do for the Lord to appease him. You know, enough to get by. So many will profess thinking that they're believers, but they reserve their lifestyle that is ungodly and they're unwilling to give it up. They'll never receive the wisdom and the strength needed from the Lord to have victory over their trials. Verse 6 says, For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. This describes a complete instability of the heart. One moment the heart is calm, seemingly faithful. The next moment a wave carries it away with lust and disobedience. The next moment uh, it may be lifted up with pride or carried away with disbelief. Don't think that that person will receive anything that he asks of the Lord. He's never able to settle within his heart. Verse 7, for that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This man is a hypocrite, sometimes professing to know the Lord, but when trials come, he falls short. Unable to overcome in the face of trials. This man's faith is useless. So, 
Consider it joy, James says, a theme repeated in the scripture, indicating the spiritual value of trials God brings in our lives. And take it from those great patriarchs of the faith who endured such hardships, who never wavered but knew the great reward, not only in this life but in the life to come. They're an example to us of how to respond to the difficult times in our life. James is a wonderful letter that gives us understanding and how we're to conduct ourselves. You know, consider Stephen when he was about to be stoned for the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 7. It says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So here's Stephen about to give his life for the Lord. And the scripture says here that Stephen saw Jesus standing on the right hand of God. You know, there are many references throughout the scripture that show the Lord in a sitting position, sitting at the right hand of the Lord, of God the Father. And here, while Stephen is about to give his life, the Lord Jesus Christ is pictured as standing, seemingly ready to receive Stephen's spirit. What a joy to understand, no matter what the circumstances may be, even to the point of death, no trials beyond the Lord's ability to rescue any one of his children. He may take us through trials, but when he's done with us, we will achieve the spiritual maturity that is of more value than pure gold. Father, we thank you again, Lord, for this beautiful day you've given us. What a joy it is to know that you are with us, Father, your Son, Jesus Christ, through all the circumstances of life. There are many here who are going through trials, Lord. We've prayed for them this morning and have been praying for them. We so thank you, dear Father, that you are faithful. You will never leave us. You will never forsake us. You will always be with us, even unto the end of the age, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for our fellowship here this morning. Thank you, Father, for those who've gathered. And Lord, I just pray that you would be pleased with our worship this morning. As the services continue, Father, I pray that you would be with uh, Pastor as he brings forth the message this morning, Father, that we might understand your word for us, that we might grow in our faith, Lord, that we might draw nearer to you, Father, that we might achieve the spiritual maturity you want in us all, Father. We thank you that you are the source of all wisdom, Lord, and all the wisdom we have comes from you. Father, blessed be your wonderful name. For these things I pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.